Welcome to St. Alphonsus Wellcast, the podcast where we explore the many facets of health and well-being. This podcast is brought to you by St. Alphonsus Corporate Health and Well-Being and a generous grant from the St. Alphonsus Foundation. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the St. Alphonsus Wellcast. My name is Amy James. I am a dietitian, and today we are talking about Series 3, the last episode of our diabetes series. Um, and today we're going to talk about all things medication management, as well as a little bit more of the nutrition management from the dietitian. Um, today we've got uh, Gabrielle Bubar. She's another dietitian in our office. And then we've also got Kim Cleveland, who's our nurse practitioner. Hi, guys. Welcome back. Good morning. Hi. All right. So let's go ahead and get started. Now, we've talked a little bit about carbohydrates. Actually, we've talked a lot about it. Carbohydrates, what they are, how they contribute to your glucose load. Um, And we've talked about how we can use them to our advantage to help manage type 2 diabetes. But I want to just get a little bit more from you, Gabby. I'm going to call you Gabby. Mm -hmm. Um, about carbohydrate counting specifically. So can you give us just kind of like your elevator speech about carbohydrate counting? Yeah, so carb counting is essentially like a meal planning method or technique for managing your blood sugar levels. Um, So it helps keep track of how many carbs you're eating throughout the day. And so working with a dietitian or um, a diabetes care team, they can help you establish how many um, grams of carbs you should be consuming throughout the day and um, specifically at different meals. And nice. So it's kind of a method okay. for, for tracking those throughout the day. Awesome. Uh, something that I use with my clients that I heard from another dietitian, um, actually someone that you guys have heard on this podcast, Valerie, is that it's kind of like your budget, right? You have mm-hmm. a carbohydrate budget for every single meal and even a snack. And that's just um, to keep your blood sugar level nice and steady throughout the day. So I think a good general recommendation, again, we want you to go see your dietitian. We want you to go see your doctor. But a good general recommendation is to keep it two to three servings of carbs per meal um, and even lesser for a snack, again, um, to just keep that optimal blood glucose range. What if you're not good at budgeting? Um, then we need another series, another episode for our series to talk about that. <laughs> um, of course, you know, like we say, give ourselves grace. We're aiming for progress and not perfection. So, you know, things happen like holidays and celebrations and um, we want to indulge a little bit and you kind of just modify the rest of the day. And um, it is true that you can't save your entire budget for one meal of the day. So you do want it evenly spread mm-hmm. throughout. Um, but yes, that I like uh, explaining it like it's a method. It's a methodology of just uh, keeping track of your carbohydrates and allotting that budget per every meal and per every snack. All right. Okay. So now let's get into something a little bit more complicated. So even though we are dietitians, I have to say that I don't really specialize or it's not really my wheelhouse, the medication aspect of things. So that's why I'm Mm -hmm. so happy Kim's here uh, (laughs) to kind of clear things up for me as well. Um, But let's just start with talking about um, so much has changed with medication with diabetes, um, especially over the last 10 years. I mean, I remember being a dietetic intern and some of the things that we have now to treat diabetes, I have never even heard of, or it's, I'm constantly hearing new stuff. Um, so tell us just, you know, what's changed in the last 10 years with um, diabetes med- medication? Yeah, it's really interesting because even since I came out of grad school, which was in 2012, so it's been 10 years now, everything has changed completely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember memorizing algorithms for treating diabetes when I was in grad yeah. school that are completely irrelevant now. Yeah, I had a chart. I had a chart that <laughs> yeah. was like, the, these are the drugs, these are the mechanisms, this is what you do. And it seemed so <clears throat> like clean and black and white, and it is 
definitely not that. <laughs> yeah, and it's great. There's been so many advances. So much money and research dollars have gone toward finding medications mm-hmm. that do a better job at lowering blood sugar with less side effects and improved outcomes. So we want to lower your blood sugar because of all the reasons we want lower blood sugar, right, to prevent those complications that happen with diabetes. But also there are some other medications that we can give that can improve cardiovascular outcomes, renal mm-hmm. outcomes, meaning your kidneys, and all that as well, um, sort of independent of their glucose-lowering effect. So we've got some really cool new agents out there that we can talk about. But just kind of going back to 10 years ago, it used to be lifestyle changes. If you were diagnosed with a lower-level A1C that was still diabetic, somewhere mm-hmm. around 6.5 to 7, we talk a lot about lifestyle. And then if you were beyond that or weren't improving, we would add on metformin, yeah. which is still a mainstay of treatment. It's a great drug. It's called a big one-eyed, and basically it works in your body as a sensitizer. It makes your tissues more sensitive to the insulin that you already have. It mm-hmm. prevents absorption of glucose from the intestines, not completely, but it does yeah. help prevent a little bit of that sugar that you're taking in from um, getting absorbed. Um, and then it also decreases your liver glucose production. Mm-hmm. So it works in three different ways, and it's a great drug. A lot of people are going to have you know, diarrhea along with that, and yeah. it can be kind of hard on your stomach, which if you continue taking it, that should decrease over time. And it still is such a great drug. We use it all the time. So, um, you know, if you weren't responding to metformin, then we'd add a drug called uh, sulfonylurea, um, like glipizide. And that was a great drug, too. But that one just basically squeezed your pancreas, telling it to kick in production of more glucose or more insulin. And then if you weren't responding to those, we'd give you straight up insulin and you'd be on mealtime insulin or basal insulin, just depending. So we kind of had three things we gave, plus a few other outlier drugs for people who were really resistant. But that was the basic treatment algorithm back then. And now we have a couple of new really exciting drugs that have kind of come down the pipe with um, some of our research that we've done over the last several years that are really, really great. We could talk about those, too. Um, there are the medications. There's the GLP-1 agonists and then the SGLT-2 inhibitors. So those are really long, <laughs> fancy technical terms. <laughs> so many acronyms. Um, okay, so let's let's like rewind a little bit. So I do want to ask you this. So something that I see in my patients a lot who just get started on metformin, they have these GI issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've heard just kind of like down the pipeline um, that it's more ideal to prescribe maybe like 500 milligrams twice a day versus I've seen doctors prescribe 2,000 milligrams twice a day, like out the gate. So yeah. how can our, our, our listeners, who are maybe, you know, kind of at this stage with their diabetes, how can they be advocates for themselves? Mm -hmm. Should they be going on 2,000 milligrams or is it kind of like a judgment call? Yeah, for me, I've always sort of started low and went slow with people for Mm -hmm. tolerance because if you start someone on 2,000 milligrams all at once, from my perspective, and they don't like it, then they'll stop and they'll never touch it again and say, I can't tolerate it, which isn't always the case. So I usually would start people on 500 milligrams once a day and see Mm -hmm. how they do after a couple weeks and then add on that second dose. Mostly because type 2 diabetes is a progressive illness that's usually developed over years of lifestyle habits and genetic factors. And if there's a couple weeks there where they're only getting 500 milligrams instead of that target dose, it's been a long process that we can work a little bit more slowly to reverse. And I feel like the benefits of doing it that way outweigh the risks. Absolutely. And you're so right. Once they experience those negative symptoms, those negative side effects, they just write it off. And Mm -hmm. I can't blame them because some of these symptoms are pretty intense. Yeah, um, definitely. Okay. Uh, so another question. I've heard you say a couple times, treatment algorithm. Um, and 
like we're saying, you know, it's it's definitely not a one-stop shop. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It's It can be so many different things. So what are the things that you're considering when you're putting together someone's treatment algorithm? Yeah. So I'm thinking about, first of all, their motivation for change with some of the lifestyle factors. So if I know that somebody is really resistant to change or says, you know, I just can't change my diet. That's not happening for me right now due to my stress level or my preferences or my family situation or whatever it is. I'm going to be a little more aggressive with the medication management side of things. Mm -hmm. Also, if I have someone who's it's super high risk for a heart attack or a stroke more imminently, I'm also going to be more aggressive in bringing down that blood sugar. People I'm going to be less aggressive with are people who I feel like are at risk of bringing their blood sugar too low. Yeah. Um, that's another factor that you want to think about too, particularly with some of the medications that stimulate insulin production mm-hmm. and just giving insulin even. Those are the two big ones you have to worry about with that hypoglycemia, that low blood sugar. Um, so we kind of look at the whole person. We look at what their other medications that they're taking are, what other risk factors they have, what other disease processes are going on, and kind of pick and choose based on what would benefit them the best. Okay. Um, All right. That sounds awesome. I feel like I'm already learning so much more about all these different medications. Yeah. Um, Okay. So you talked a little bit about GLP-1 agonists and SGLT-2 inhibitors. So do you want to maybe elaborate a little bit more on those and what those mechanisms are in the body and, and how those work? Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I know you've talked about it in the last couple of podcasts. Basically, all the carbohydrates we consume are broken down into sugar in the body. And then our body has tons of mechanisms for controlling the amount of sugar that's circulating and helping our tissues use that sugar. So your pancreas is secreting insulin, and then you have all of your other organs and your, you know, your liver and um, your pancreas are working really closely together along with your intestines to release certain hormones and peptides that are controlling that amount of sugar, how much your liver's storing, and all these different mechanisms, right? So it's kind of a fun spot to be in with medications because we kind of can play with it in the different areas of the feedback loop and of the cycle to stop this or add more of this. And it's almost like a little recipe. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) That's our algorithm. That's our recipe. (laughs) Yeah, it's our recipe. It's like, where can we go on this cascade? Where can we go on this whole pathway in order to help bring that sugar into a normal range? So One of the most exciting ones, if you're a nerd like I am, is the GLP-1 agonist. Um, These are going to be some of the medications you maybe have heard of, um, like Bayetta or Bidurion, and then Victoza is another one. And basically what they do is they work by stimulating insulin release from the pancreas. So um, similar to like that sulfonylurea, they'll kind of work that way. But then they also prevent your body from releasing an inappropriate amount of glucagon as well, which is one method. And then it slows the stomach from emptying out all that food. So um, you can imagine if you've got food hanging out in your stomach for a longer period of time than normal, you're going to be full for longer. Mm -hmm. And so that also stimulates weight loss. And they've actually started using another form of this as just a weight loss drug um, as wow. well. So there's there's a lot of things that are that are great about the GLP-1 agonists, and they just sort of mimic other peptides that are already in your body. Got it. And if you guys don't know, glucagon is a hormone that breaks down our uh, glucose stores in our body, um, something that we call glycogen. Uh, it works against insulin in the opposite direction. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. I'm motioning to Kim like I have that right, right? (laughs) I know. It's like, you know, you do all these like endocrinology, like we all have all this training in it and then trying to recall the exact feedback loops 10 years later that you were tested on. There's a lot. There's so much. (laughs) 
Um, um, okay. Yeah. Um, okay, so that was the GLP-1 agonist. Yeah, and those are great drugs. So now, like we talked about the 10-year-ago algorithm where it used to be the metformin plus the um, the glipizide or the sulfonylurea. Now we're looking at more like metformin and then adding either insulin or one of these GLP-1 agonists as another option for a second-line treatment um, because they work so well. And then they also work really well, again, for that weight loss, which is frequently a part of the puzzle for people with type 2 diabetes Mm -hmm. and managing that. So the SGLT2 inhibitors, um, those are going to be like Jardiance and Invacana. The benefits of them is that they are oral agents, whereas most of the GLP-1 agonists are injectables, and Mm -hmm. they can be injectable either daily or once weekly even. Um, So, you know, injecting once a week for most people is doable, but some people have a big problem with injections, which I don't blame them. It can be super intimidating and not something you look forward to doing. Um, But these SGLT2 inhibitors, which are oral agents, they basically make you pee out sugar. Um, You know, your kidneys process some sugar, too. And when you're making urine and whatnot, it basically Mm -hmm. just prevents you from reabsorbing the sugar that you would, you know, now you're going to pee it out. Um, And so they can work really well. And people who have heart disease and kidney disease do have improved outcomes on these SGLT2 inhibitors. So they're helpful in that way. They're just not as potent at lowering mm-hmm. blood sugar as okay. the any of the other drugs. So they're just not quite as strong with that particular piece, but they do provide some of that cardio protection. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, so kind of like piggybacking on that. So um, a lot of these drugs have multiple effects, like they mm-hmm. can affect weight loss. And then you also talked about some drugs that can lower the risk of cardiovascular disease or um, improve cardiovascular outcomes. So can you talk a little bit about those drugs or maybe like how that works? Yeah. So basically, when you have diabetes, you're at higher risk for heart attacks and strokes Mm -hmm. um, due to many mechanisms, including like inflammation and the the tax that all the sugar takes on your vasculature and all that, too. Um, So, you know, just by lowering that sugar into a normal range can improve your cardiovascular outcomes as well. Um, And then we know that certain drugs like the SGLT2 inhibitors work well for people with heart and kidney disease. There were some other drugs on the market years ago that we use a lot less now that are actually pretty poor for cardiovascular outcomes. So we don't use them so much anymore. Okay. Um, But basically we want to get that blood sugar down and prevent complications. Okay. Great. Um, Okay. So kind of like an a question I can imagine a lot of our listeners might be asking is like, okay, there's so much change. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much fluctuation. It's kind of like we're hearing one thing this day and then another thing the next. So like, how do we um, give them confidence? How do, how are we providers that, um, you know, make our patients and clients feel safe with what we're recommending, even though things are changing so much? Like, how do we make them feel good about that? Yeah. I mean, I think the data is definitely can speak for itself in a lot of ways, right? Like, you know, some of the drugs that we're using are still drugs that we were using 20, 30 years ago. So we have good safety, um, you know, safety data on those types of medications and how they work. And, and you know, I think we can always come back to, like, the lifestyle modification piece, too, mm-hmm. is going to be paramount. So, yes, I do want to work with you on your lifestyle, too. I'm not just here to push medications on you and and to try to get you to take things that you may not need or aren't safe for your body. And so I think focusing on that, and I think we all do the best we can to work with people on that as well. Yeah. Um, and then also just, you know, being honest about how new some of these medicines are and telling them what the data are and what we do see with people who are taking one medication versus the other. And I think sort of being transparent in that way and providing the education is important. And then also educating people on the possibilities of these adverse effects that can happen, like 
you know, I'm going to prescribe you metformin. The possibility is that you can get diarrhea. Let me know if that happens. We Mm -hmm. can work through a treatment plan for that or give you a strategy to manage that as well. And similarly with any of the other side effects with the other medications, we can certainly work with people in that way. Yeah. I always tell my clients and patients too that, you know, this is science, right? So we should feel good when things are evolving and things are changing because Mm -hmm. all that it means Mm -hmm. is that we're learning more. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas I think a lot of people might feel it as something inconsistent, Um, but it's no, it's just that we're researching more, we're learning more, we're getting the data. Um, And so that's what I like to say. Yeah, I think that's great. Definitely. All right. So I want to talk a little bit about continuous glucose monitoring. Now, just as there are so many different medications we can prescribe, there are also a lot of different ways that people can track their blood sugar levels, Mm -hmm. which is something I don't think that we've talked about in this series yet. So can we talk a little bit about the different ways that people can monitor their blood sugar and then segue kind of more specifically into continuous glucose monitoring and why we're kind of going for that moreover than anything else? Yeah, that'd be great. So I think and with anybody who has diabetes, regardless of what their diagnosis A1C is, if it's more advanced diabetes or just sort of a beginning stage, I think checking blood sugar is really important. And maybe for people who have less severe disease or who aren't taking insulin, um, it doesn't have to be as frequent of a check, but checking it periodically under different circumstances can be helpful. So you know, checking your fasting sugar every day can give you some insight into what you ate the previous day or evening and how it's affecting your blood sugar when you wake up in the morning. And then also checking a blood sugar two hours after a meal can kind of tell you the impact that that prior meal has had on you as well. Mm-hmm. And then two, you know, taking into account other factors like stress and sleep, hydration status, exercise, and all those other things can just help people connect dots in a way that they wouldn't have insight into their own body otherwise. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's a really important part of diabetes management. And for people that I have on um, medications like insulin or people who are on some of these, even the GLP-1s or SGLT-2s, I'll sometimes, you know, recommend for the first few weeks that they check it. And a lot of it's just so they can see, like, this is working or, you know, this is a huge improvement or not so much of an improvement as well. And then also, you know, people are starting like an exercise program. I loved for people to check it then because they can see what the effect is of actually Mm -hmm. taking just a 10 minute walk. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. So usually those are a finger stick check. So we have little monitors that look like little mini computers and you just poke your finger and put it on a strip and it gives you a number. Um, And some of them are really great now because they can help you identify trends even in the machine. You can do like a review of of the prior, you know, blood sugars that you've had. So that's the more typical way of checking Mm -hmm. your blood sugar. Um, More recently, we've gotten into continuous glucose monitoring, which is usually a um, little subcutaneous probe that's on the back of your arm. And subcutaneous meaning like right into your skin. So um, it's pretty shallow. It's about, you know, I think an eighth of an inch or five-eighths of an inch. No, an eighth of an inch deep into the skin. And it basically measures the sugar um, in the interstitial fluid. So it's giving you... Um, it like calculates what your blood sugar is based on that. So it's not getting it directly from your blood, but it is uh-huh. inferencing it from your blood. And that can be done either the back of the arm or the stomach. And it pre- initially was something that we just did with type 1 diabetics who were okay. on an insulin pump or something like that, sort of getting a continuous dose of insulin mm-hmm. so that they could know if their blood sugar was dropping low for some reason. And then now it's become more um, exciting, I guess, in the field of type 2 diabetes too. Yeah. Um, it is something that isn't necessary for people who have type 2 diabetes in most cases, 
Um, but it can, again, provide some of that feedback because a lot of people have a hard time checking their blood sugar, you know, two or yeah. three times a day, or especially if they aren't taking insulin and have a direct mm-hmm. need to know the exact number at that time. Yeah. Um, so I think the benefits are, again, like providing some of that insight into some of the things they're doing or the situations in their diet or their exercise level or their stress level um, immediately. But um, some of the drawbacks, too, are that it's an expensive thing to incorporate into a treatment plan. And when I'm looking at changing medications or altering um, a treatment regimen, most of the time I'm going off of their hemoglobin A1C anyway. And so that number doesn't necessarily carry as much weight as um as it would with like a type 1 diabetic and making those immediate treatment mm-hmm. changes with their insulin dose. So I think it has pluses and minuses, but it certainly can be a useful part of, of type 2 diabetes management if people are interested in that. Yeah. And how often do they have to change the site? Every 48 to 72 hours for most systems, I believe. Okay. I think that's right, too. I threw that question at Kim, by the way. <laughs> we didn't talk about that before. <laughs> okay. So then the final thing I want to talk about, and I think this pertains to dietitians too, is like how do we keep um, uh, motivation up for people who kind of go on these medication regimens to stick with that, but then also to stick with the lifestyle modifications as well. So we're talking diet, we're talking exercise, we're talking consistent sleep, keeping stress levels down. Um, how do we all come together as providers and and get people on a lifestyle as well as medication management and to stick with it? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. Um, I think when people feel surrounded by a team, um, I think that they feel supported and they feel empowered often to make decisions mm-hmm. that are serving them and their health. And so I think just having those ongoing appointments and checkups with those providers is certainly an important piece of it. Um, And I love the communication piece. Like, you know, we have such a unique situation in our office, but it's certainly within the era of, you know, electronic medical records, it's great to be able to touch base between provider and provider to talk about how we're managing patients too. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, Okay. So then the last thing, I think I've already said this four times already, but this will really be the last thing. Um, This is, we're wrapping up our diabetes series. So I kind of just want to, for each of us, me, Gabby, Kim, to go around and give like one piece of advice for anybody who might be listening, who, you know, maybe recently had a high A1C or maybe had their blood sugar checked and it was really high. And they're like, gosh, you know, like I need some follow-up care, but maybe they're feeling a little hesitant. Like, what is just a good, sound piece of advice for that first step? Kim, go. Yeah, I would say the number one thing that I say to anybody who has a new diagnosis is you have the power to make a change. Yeah. I never want anybody to leave a, an appointment or a visit feeling you know, sad or depressed or disempowered or hopeless. Um, you know, Those are all really natural responses when we have a piece of bad news or a new diagnosis that's scary, but ultimately... Every single one of us has it in our power to make a change, either small or big, that will impact our health positively. Yeah, I love that. Okay, definitely. And I think for me, it's just it can, you know, a diagnosis can be very daunting and it's a lot of information right off the bat for someone. So just knowing that we are all here, there's a lot of um, resources and people out there to help you through your journey and to um, kind of guide you and be an accountability partner and just be there for you so you know all of our services are available um but yeah so there's there's a plethora of resources which is great and there's always someone that's willing to kind of walk you through it yeah absolutely um for me I think for anybody and I guess this relates to so many other people who are 
you know, getting new diagnoses. But um, when we think about all that it entails, you know, treatment, fixing the solution, getting a better lab value, getting a better A1C, like those are all pretty big steps to think about. And so I always tell my clients and my patients to just think about like, what's that next plan of action? What's that next step you can do? Maybe it's making the phone call. Maybe it's just jotting down some questions you have for your first appointment. So kind of break down your next steps into small steps. Like you don't have to think about the whole big picture just right now. Break it down into what your next two steps are and just tackle those and just continue Mm -hmm. kind of chipping away at the problem until you find those solutions. And then, yeah, just to echo what you guys are saying, um, ask questions because we're here for you. And there are so many other offices like ours. They don't really function like ours, but there are so many other great diabetes centers and healthcare providers that are here to help you along the way. Um, And we also serve as accountability partners, right? So if you need to see us once a week, if you need to see us, you know, once every two weeks, whatever it will be that will keep you accountable and help you and make you, you know, feel comfortable and confident, do that for yourself. And that's what we're here for. Mm -hmm. All right. Any uh, last thoughts? Also super fun to talk about Mm -hmm. some of the advances that are out there. And I think we Mm -hmm. really are better prepared to serve our patients now more than ever. Absolutely. Um, I can't agree more. This has actually helped me as a dietitian immensely. Um, So I'm really grateful for for both of you guys being here. And this, like I said, is our last episode for our diabetes series. So thank you, everybody, for listening. And we will catch you next time on the St. Alphonsus Podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of St. Alphonsus Wellcast, brought to you by St. Alphonsus Corporate Health and Wellbeing and the St. Alphonsus Foundation. Always be sure to catch new episodes by subscribing to us through all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. We hope you'll tune in again. Until then, be well.